Welcome to this week's More Than Tech podcast with your host, Tanvir Bangu. On today's episode, I chat with Rob Rustagno, founder and CEO of Sterling Woods Group, a consulting firm that has a goal of reliably increasing near-term sales and sustaining organic growth over time by using data science to uncover low-risk, high-leverage go-to-market strategies for its clients. Rob previously served as senior executive at several private equity-owned businesses, including a COO of America's Test Kitchen. Before that, he started his career at McKinsey. He's authored a book titled Member is Worth a Thousand Visitors. He's a keynote speaker at conferences around the world, and he has been featured on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, Forbes, you name it. Some of the things we discuss in this podcast include Rob's journey from corporate to starting Sterling Woods, why companies need to focus on the whales, why data is so important for go-to-market strategies, and the best strategy for leveraging content at scale to close business. You can follow Rob on LinkedIn, and don't forget to check out his website at sterlingwoods.com. This is the More Than Tech podcast presented by TBX Digital. This is your host, Tanvir Bangu. On this podcast, we discuss digital transformation journeys with executives and leaders in the B2C space and how their transformations are a little bit more than just tech. All right, team, let's jump in with the one and only Rob Restagno. Welcome to the More Than Tech podcast. Today we have Rob Restagno. Rob, so glad to have you on the show. Tanvir, great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Quick introduction for Rob. So founder and CEO of Sterling Woods Group, a consulting firm. Your goal is reliably increasing near-term sales and sustain organic growth over time by using data science to uncover low risk, high leverage go-to-market strategies. This is a really great concept we'll dive into today for sure. Uh, but before we get there, long introduction for you, Rob. So you previously served as senior executive at several private equity-owned businesses, including as a COO of America's Test Kitchen which I think anybody knows. You started your career at McKinsey, you're a Harvard grad, you're also an author, wrote a book called Members Worth a Thousand Visitors, a keynote speaker around the world, you've been featured on ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, I mean, you name it. That's a lot of things that you're doing. How do you find the time to do all these things? <laughs> you need a great team around you. I think it's... Uh... Um, it's something that's really important to me actually is to make sure that it's not becoming Robert Stagno Inc. And that it's yep. really Sterling Woods that, that we're building. Um, so, uh, you know, while someone, I guess, has to, has to draw the short store and be straw and be the face yep. of the brand, uh, uh, it really takes a, a village to get all this stuff done. I mean, you know what, like that, that's a great concept actually, Rob, where I've seen a lot of entrepreneurs that start their own businesses and then they become themselves or clients start expecting them to be the face which really stagnates the growth sometimes. So how have yeah. you found that challenge and what are you doing about it? It's, it's definitely a challenge, I think, from both a, a sales and a delivery standpoint where mm-hmm. uh, people want to quote unquote cart, cart me out because my name is on the website yeah. uh, uh, before anyone will, will, will close a deal. And then in projects too, kind of uh, uh, the, the temptation is for clients to ask for uh, hey, wait, we, know, we got to meet Rob during the sales process. We want Rob to, to work on this. And you know, the, way to, the way that we've solved that problem is really, uh, well, two things. One is you have to build outstanding talent around you. So no, no sacrifices there. And, and, and as an entrepreneur, you know yourself, uh, you, you and, and, and the, the company are, are one of the same. And if someone insults your company, they're insulting you. And if something goes wrong for your company, it's, uh, it's bad for you. So you need to make sure you're, you're investing and in getting the right talent on, on your team. Uh, but the second one is just to make sure that you're you're having you're building intellectual property 
and you're building assets, which could take, depending on what business you're in, in my business, since we're consulting, we're, we're standardizing our, our frameworks and our, and our analyses and our delivery so that we can train people. Now, every client gets a, a bespoke, a custom solution uh, for their market and their company. We don't have the answer uh, you know, templated, yep. t- templatized out there, uh, but just the process we go through and the values that are important to us uh, and, and the models that we may want to consider to look for the insight, the more that you can standardize that. Mm-hmm. So you have a, a toolkit, toolbox, whatever phrase you want to use for your team, the more you can say, hey, look, this is the method developed by Robert Stagno of Sterling Woods, but everyone here is really an expert on how to deploy exactly. the method. Exactly. Uh, and that's what you're getting. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a great concept because a lot of times when entrepreneurs build something, it's, you know, they don't really focus on the process of the people, but mm. you never once mentioned you're a data-driven company or you have this technology. You just started out by saying the team, right? So mm. walk me through that because at the end of the day, this podcast is about more than tech. So how mm. do you find the people? How do you train the people? How do you invest in your people? Yeah. So I think a book I always recommend is called Who by Jeff Smart and Randy Street. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I recommend every entrepreneur reads that book because it really walks you through best practices and how you uh, how you how you recruit for your team. And I'll, uh, I won't do it justice if I try to explain, but it's it's when you read the book, it's sort of like how come we're not doing that? It's like so obvious in a good way. Um, uh, it's like, you know, you should, before you even post a job spec, you should have a very clear understanding of what your objectives are for that person for their first yep. three, six, nine, 12 months. Uh, otherwise, why, why are you hiring? How are you going to be able to screen a candidate if you don't know what, what you want to get out of them? Um, so lots, lots, I would start there, um, you know, just in terms of sourcing, uh, you know, nothing beats people you've worked with in the past or referrals from people that you've worked for, for in the past. So the more you can leverage your personal network, um, the better, uh, and always, always be recruiting. I think is another thing. So uh, huge, uh, you know, always be building relationships, and you never know if you can hire. You can't hire someone now. Keep them in your in your uh, on your bench, so to speak, and and uh, know that when you have a need, it's if you start from scratch, it's going to take you months to find the right person. Um, so so why not build that bench in advance? That's I think that's huge because I don't think people realize that if you when you start looking for someone that time is also money because you're now spending time that you were spending on business. Yeah. Now you're actually spending on people. Right. And yeah. I, mean, I had first, first um, hand examples where I've met folks for coffee chats. I didn't have an opening, but I think, as you said, build a pipeline. Cause then when there's time you just bring, Hey, I know this guy, you know, yeah. I can bring this yeah. person in. It's more of a game of chess at that point yeah. versus trying to find the pieces. Right. Yeah. There you go. Um, so Rob, you walk me through early, early life. So I know you went to Harvard, but like, you know, what was it like growing up the path you chose? And then I know you started, went to McKinsey as your first job. So walk through that phase of life. Yeah. I think I mean, as a, as a kid, I always, uh, I always wanted to start my own business. In fact, I had lots of little enterprises when I was 11, I started a newspaper for my neighborhood. Wow. We did, uh, we had ads, subscriptions. We even had uh, sort of the early version of e-commerce. We had like a yard sale <laughs> that, was, <laughs> nice. that was put together by, by the Sterling Times. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just something I always wanted to do. Uh, did, did the McKinsey thing, loved it. Uh, learned a lot. It's a lot of work, as you know. Uh, uh, but it was, it was, I made lots of great friends there and it's a great network and probably learned five years worth of, of learning per year that I was there. Uh, so left feeling... Um, like I got a great, uh, great, great degree from, from yep. McKinsey. Uh, but you know, I always, I always wanted to see what it was like to get my hands dirty. And so that's why I worked for three different private equity owned businesses. 
yeah. usually in some sort of sales, marketing, business development capacity, uh, or COO eventually to that you know had had more than just that. Uh, but th- the problem I saw there, uh, you know, across these 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 companies was look expectations are, are pretty high. If you're private mm-hmm. equity owned, you're going to have to hit this 20 yep. to 30% IRR target. And uh, sort of the good news about private equity is they're not really ex- demanding that you go above that 30% IRR, uh, but they're really going to be upset if you hit like 19, Hello. if the goal yeah. was 20. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so uh, unlike venture, which is kind of the opposite, which is like hit a home run, 10x my money or, or go go to zero. I don't care. I'll have enough of diversity in my portfolio that it will work out. So I kind of like that private equity thing. But the challenge is you couldn't make any huge risky bets. So you had a, mm-hmm. you had limited resources, very tight cost controls. Investments had to be very well documented, very solid business case uh, to, to be able to do anything new. And you know the challenge is when you're trying to grow your business, there's, there's literally an infinite number of things you can do. You know, do you hire more salespeople? Do you change your marketing mix? Do you launch new products? Yep. Do you go into new markets? Uh, so after McKinsey, I worked for three different private equity owned businesses. At first in the sales, marketing, business development space, then more on, as a COO. What I noticed working for private equity owned businesses is that the expectations were really high. And actually like that, it kind of keeps, the, keeps the momentum going forward. There's this mandate for growth. There's definitely though this requirement that you have to help them hit their 20 to 30% IRR. Uh, the good news is they're not expecting you to hit a huge home run and 10x their investment in two years, yep. uh, but they're not going to be happy if they come in at 19% <laughs> and they, they want a 20. Uh, it's unlike the venture world where, where you know, they're okay with the 10x versus zero uh, extremes. Yes. So here's the problem. You have to grow your business, but you have limited resources. So private equity companies are, are, are slow to dole out investments. They need, you need to have a very strong business case to, to invest in doing anything new. It's very, so it's very incremental, I'm assuming. Very yeah, slow. exactly. That's a good way of putting yeah. it. It's a lot of how can you string together a lot of singles and doubles uh, and really have the confidence that everything you're going to do is going to lead to a single and, and double consistently so that you end up with that, you know, the, the, in aggregate uh, doing even better than you would have if you, if you swung for the fences and try to get a home run out of the bat. So when I was at McKinsey and working with these big Fortune 500 companies, you could use data to figure out what the things to work on should mm-hmm. be. Uh, but obviously, these middle market companies don't have a data science team. They don't have licenses to the latest uh, technology. Uh, they can't afford to buy that much third-party data. How, so- how crazy is it that, that a lot of these companies make decisions on gut? It's, it's more, it's more yeah. normal than we think. Yeah, no, you're rest, absolutely right. right? There's, there's a lot... Uh, of decision making based on what I, actually what I see a lot is inertia, uh, just kind of yeah. hey we made this it decision five years ago and so we're just sticking with it. Uh, a little bit of we 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 tried this five years ago and it, it flopped, but no one asked the question. Well, what's changed over the last five years, or why did it flop? Maybe there are no yeah. resources behind it. That's why it flopped, or maybe it was poor execution, or maybe the market wasn't ready yet. Um, but yeah, it is it is amazing how much. And it's sad too, because gut feel, I also think takes more time because everyone has their own gut feel. So now you're and stuck. You keep going debating it again and again. Yeah. Debating, yeah. <laughs> and where if you just went to the data, uh, it, you, have to, you, know, you have to know what you're looking for yeah. uh, and, and ask the right questions of your data. Uh, but that could, could, could help with both speed to, to market and success rate. Question I wanted to build off of that, Rob, was given that you were now able to find some sort of a product, right? How has that helped? a lot of these businesses that you are now helping that perhaps don't have a data scientist team. So what are like some of the things that they can now do that they weren't able to do before? 
Yeah, I think the, the, the number one thing is doing a really robust data-driven segmentation of your market. Mm-hmm. And when, when we do it, so far, 100% of the time, what we found is companies are spending just as much money going after their very best t- types of customers, their very best types of leads and prospects as they are going after bad customers, unprofitable customers, low margin customers, very hard to convert customers. And there's still too much casting of a wide net and not enough saying, hey, these are the customers, these are the customer segments that we're gonna do the best in. They're the easiest to acquire, to acquire and they're the easiest to derive a margin off of. So let's start by understanding our market segments and just reallocating our sales and marketing budgets yep who are the right types of opportunities. That goes a long, long way. And this is, this is a lot of B2B, right? Or is this also B2C? Yeah. We do both. Yeah. Uh, when we started, actually, we did a lot of B2C. And then more recently, we're doing primarily B2B. So it works in both cases. And it works in both cases because you're, dealing, you're selling to individuals. So in, in B2B, the, you know, there's more complexity because there may be multiple individuals involved. But at the end yeah. of the day, you're looking for those motivational hooks and given a certain segment, what is it going to take to get them to buy? So, so question for you then, um, let's say, you know, data is what data gives us some sort of a, an answer, right? Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on this, this notion of you want to be always doing market awareness. You want to always be trying to hit every single person because you don't know where the lead's going to come from. Now you're saying that you can tell this is what you should be focusing your time on. So how would that way of thinking that a lot of people have been saying, you know, mass funnel, and then you start converting. So what are your thoughts on that? Look, I'm, I'm guilty of it myself, to be perfectly honest. When I started my business, even though this is the idea that I had, I was like, I'm yeah. casting a wide net. You never know. You need to ring the register. And, and I quickly realized for myself, I needed to, to take a dose of my own medicine because doing so is just a, a formula for frustration. You're spending, you know, you're, you're hunting down 20 different leads yeah. and, and most of them aren't qualified. And maybe you get one sale out of it. Uh, people would, would love to say, hey, give me five of the right leads and I'll close two of them. I think you'll be a lot happier as an entrepreneur or sales executive. You're also more you effective, I'm assuming, right? Yeah, and yeah, exactly. also don't, I think you also, for a lot of young entrepreneurs that are out there, you also don't feel as much rejection as you would otherwise. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, morale, right? <laughs> yeah, I like that point. That's a really good point. Yeah. So, okay. So, so that's great. So then the, my question for you then is, Rob, let's say you have all this data, right? And you tell someone, hey, here's the accounts you have to go after. What are some of the non, you know, normal items? Like what are some of the items that are not so visible to people that you have to get right for this kind of stuff to work? And this is the same thing in, let's say like, you know, I, I especially digital transformations, right? Like one, one thing I always tell people is like, you can have an amazing tech platform, but if you're not going to drive the right types of processes or have the right people, this is not going to do you any good. So what, what kind of stuff have you seen in your career that just trumps all of this stuff? Uh, well, first of all, I do echo what you said that uh, it really annoys me, but the, the most common question I get when I first meet someone at a conference or something is yeah. like, oh, what, what CRM should I buy? What, what CMS should I buy? What DMP should I buy? It's like, t- that's a total wrong question to start with. Yeah. Uh, it really starts with A, who is your target audience? Who are your whales? Who are your best pockets, your best segments that you should be focusing on? Then B, the other surprising thing is you really need to get the value proposition right. And we've done a lot of research and a lot of testing, and we've found time and time again, crafting an appropriate value proposition mm-hmm. is the number one driver of conversion. And it, it sounds a little bit 
come, like it's coming out of an MBA textbook here and I try to avoid MBA speak as much as possible. But this one is where I ask for an exception in a pass because it's so powerful. Just people need to understand why they're their exact right target, what problems you're solving from that, for them from both a, a tangible and emotional standpoint, uh, and then why you're the best pe person to solve that problem for them. So this goes back to your point, then. You're going to have a hard time converting customers. Yeah. And this goes back to your point about the more narrow you can get. And I think the value proposition is the starting point of that, because if you come to me and you tell me that you do all these great things, but I'm not sure what problem you're solving for me, what you're saying is I'm not going to, you're going to have a lot of hard time converting me because I don't see you as a credible uh, or authority in what you're doing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, so I mean, how can businesses then narrow down their value proposition? So, and then also there's a notion of, you know, I, we offer so many different things. We're so big. We don't want to limit ourselves to one niche. How do you then yeah. fight off that battle? Yeah. Well, I would just say, take the world on one niche at a time. Uh, you know, that's kind of the, uh, yeah. the, the preferred strategy. And the example I like to give is dollar shave club, which I think a lot of people have heard. Yeah. They focused on males 18 to 28 or you know, some young, young, younger males. Uh, and you might argue, well, then, you know, they're going to, max out at a certain point. But now if you look at their numbers, their, their growth is coming actually from females. So they found, they found a subscription product that was a, a, appealing to females and uh, you, you just kind of go after the next, next niche. So uh, there are more than enough niches out there, but uh, uh, yeah, go, go, take one off at a time rather than try to be everything to everyone. That doesn't work anymore. That's, I think that's, that's, that's a great way to put it because at the end of the day, once you, I also believe that if you do niche yourself in, I think you almost build some sort of a demand for other niches yeah. or other customers to say, hey, I also want to be part of that group. So I, yeah. I think a great example I saw was when Apple uh, released the iPod back in like early 2000s, they said, this is for this cool, hip, someone who has this kind of a lifestyle. But you saw a lot of older females also buy it because everybody wants to relate to that kind of yeah. a lifestyle, right? So I think yeah. all of the niche themselves, I think they almost created demand by saying there's an exclusivity to the product. Yeah. I think that's kind yeah. of, that's kind of similar to what you're saying. Yeah, you're right. And we actually experienced that ourselves. The, the book that we wrote yeah. three, three years ago or so was targeted at media companies. That was the first niche we picked off mm -hmm. and it was a hundred percent written for media companies. And I thought, you know, the, the purpose of the book was more just to establish credibility in, in yeah. our niche, not to sell a million copies on Amazon, but we did happen to sell thousands of copies on Amazon to people that uh, were not in the media industry. And they all reached out saying, hey, can you do this in financial services? Can you do this in business services? Can you do this in software? Awesome. Uh, so your, your point's spot on there. Can you, if you can solve it in one niche, that gives you the proof source to go in, into to Amazing. the next venture. Amazing. Awesome. Um, switching gears a little bit here, uh, Rob, what are some of the common problems you're seeing today, especially with COVID? For a lot of businesses, and this is really talking about, you know, the digital transformation, yeah. whether it's using data or just, I think some of the, some of the folks weren't ready. What are some of the biggest hurdles you're seeing today? And what should businesses be focusing on if they had to pick two or three bets for the next one or two years? For the next one, two years, that's a good question. Um, I think with, with COVID, I think it's figuring out uh, digital transformation is, is, is the quick answer, but what, what does that really mean? Exactly. Uh, I think one of the biggest things is figuring out how to get more qualified leads using on, online channels. Uh, so I think th there's, uh, especially for B2B, I mean, I think B2B industry was very heavily uh, dependent on events and face-to-face -face and networking, and that's all on hold. And it's really tough. I mean, I, I've been to 
a dozen plus events online this this year and it's great for delivering content, but it's not great. No one's cracked the nut yet on how to use conferences online to build relationships to that leads to lead gen. <laughs> that leads yeah. to, to um, great for content. I've been to lots of amazing events and learned a lot of great things and heard from some amazing speakers, but they're not as good for for that networking, uh, personal interaction thing. So. Um, it, you know, a lot of companies, they spend 25% of their, of their sales and marketing budget on going to events or mm-hmm. hosting events themselves. So they have to find a way to redeploy that. And if they want to keep the, the momentum going on the revenue side, yeah. uh, and, and the, the best way to do is figure out digital once, once and for all. Uh, and, and I'm not a huge fan of just going out and buying cold lists. Uh, maybe there, I don't want to knock list vendors out there. There's probably some, some good use cases for them that I, that haven't applied to me yet. Uh, but I will say that you can do a lot more online with all the sophisticated tools and analytics and content marketing and, and going after the exact yep. right leads so that the sales team is super excited with the marketing spend, not like, oh, great, here's a hundred random people that I have to call. So what would be, so, so that's a great point because, you know, there's this notion of outbound, which people say still works, but I haven't seen it work. So what would be your ideal marketing stack? Or, you know, let's say you had, you had five, 20%, 20% blocks. How would you build that out for a business today? Would it be content? Would it be inbound, you know, or conferences? What would it consist of? Yeah, I think whatever the stack is, it has to have a really seamless integration between marketing and sales. Uh, so I definitely would start with some sort of, uh, yeah, let's say con- content marketing, inbound marketing yeah. type of, of solution to go out and capture people's names and trade off relevant pieces of content in exchange for, for your contact information. Uh, in the middle layer, I would have some sort of email service provider that does a great job at tracking, especially by segment, how mm-hmm. people are engaging or not engaging with your, your content and what types of content is engaging to them. And that has a hookup nicely to a CRM so that your sales team can be notified, lead scoring by segment, say, hey, here are the segments I'm focused on. Here's the, here are the hot leads right now. These people have opened the last three things we sent them and provided a lot of information about themselves. Now it's time to pick up the phone and, and, uh, and, yeah. and interact with them. So I think, yeah, those are the three, three pieces that I, that I think are critical in, in 2020. Well said. Very, 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 very well said. Um, so diving into the first one, so the content marketing then. Are you of the opinion, and you know, I hear Gary Vaynerchuk always say, every, every business nowadays will become a content marketing company. So if you can become a content, um, if that can be a core competency, you can win anything, everything else, because everything else is easy to do. Is that yeah. where you're also seeing the industry going? Is that something that you've also been advising on, or, is, or you have a different view of that? No, I, I agree with that. And I think it, it, it comes back to uh, people have questions and needs, back to our value proposition. Yeah. People, people have a problem and a need, and they're asking questions online about how to solve that problem, scratch, how to scratch that itch. And so if your content is out there and it helps them scratch, scratch that itch, you're just going to build credibility there and build a relationship. And, and people are going to buy on, on relationships. And that's how you do it online is providing useful information, not spamming people, not kind of being obnoxious with pop-ups yeah. and, and distracting banner ads. How many? Uh, it's I mean, be, hey, so- look, uh, sorry, just quickly. How many times have people added you on LinkedIn and started to spam you? Oh, it? that drives me crazy. That drives me crazy. I, I, you know, LinkedIn should be a great tool for for building yep. relationships. And if I get one more email being like, "Hey, I'm looking to net, connect with other cool, like-minded CEOs in my area," yeah. uh, what do you say? Uh, you know, then it's, if you accidentally say yes, then you get an automated like, "Hey, great, let's set up a sales call." Exactly. <laughs> <It's not gonna laughs> exactly. Work. 
So, so I mean, I, I guess you're the point you're trying to make is this stuff takes time, right? Relationships take time. So I think it's about giving the right value and the right content to help someone so that eventually they, when there's a need or when they feel that this guy scratch that itch, you are the first company to think of, right? Which takes, which takes patience. Yeah. 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 yeah my, fr my friend, Joe Polizzi ran, he founded and ran the content marketing Institute. He sold it for a lot of money a couple oh. of years ago. Uh, but you know, his, his, what he always said was, look, I did lots of different things, got a magazine, a newsletter, website, blog, you know, mini events. And uh, his business, business model was an event business. He, he wanted people to come to his event. Uh, and what he found was that if he could get someone to click on three different pieces of content across three different channels, so read the magazine and read the newsletter and came to the website, they were, he was golden. And those people were definitely going to buy a ticket to his event. So yes. just kind of keep, be patient. Uh, don't expect after two cold emails, someone's going to buy. Play the long game. Look at your numbers. Understand how, how people interact with your content and make sure that uh, you, you find those, those most likely to buy candidates. And you, then those are the people that you send your sales team after. Yeah, so I think, I think to summarize, maximize your number of channels that you're on. Maximize the content for the number of channels. And then yeah. provide good value. And then iterate based on the data and based on how people are interacting with their data or your, or your content. Yeah, I might, I might add one nuance instead of maybe maximizing the number, it's, it's, not, it's yep. more quality over quantity, but maybe diversify. You want to have some diverse channels, some diverse content to test. So you're testing different things. But if you don't have the resources to yep. be on 10 different platforms, don't be on 10 different platforms because it will affect quality. So, so then this last question on this topic is very interesting. How do you find the quality when you don't have a quantity or should you try a quantity first to see what works? Ah, that's a good question. And it's always a chicken and egg thing. Yeah. I'm a big fan of, of overemphasizing quality, even if it means a, a slight sacrifice on speed to market. I think I, I would say quality, but be willing to take risks. Uh, and, and I think when I, I remember when I first, uh, the first blog article I ever wrote, I probably spent like a whole week writing on writing it and super Editing polished it, yeah. and a million people look at it before I posted it. And then like seven people read it. <laughs> like one of them was my mom. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, kind of, you have to, you can't be a perfectionist. Uh, so take some risks, get, get out there, but don't, don't do clickbait type stuff. Cause that's just going to hurt you in the long run. Well, give good value and be patient. Awesome. Um, so, Rob, so last piece of advice for businesses that are, struggling right now, they don't have data scientists working for them. They don't have the luxury of looking at data. What can they do today? Maybe two or three key things to find some really quick wins. Go and talk to your customers and that start collecting data that way. So go and set up five, 10, 20 interviews with the, who you think your, your best customers are and talk to them, ask them questions about why they're interested in this category, uh, why they bought from you, uh, what, what problems you're solving for them, how, how your product's making them feel, what are kind of the motivational hooks to keep them around, uh, what, what are the white, where are the, the gaps, where's the white space, where, where are things that we could be doing differently or more of, either from a product standpoint or a service standpoint. Uh, and right there, you'll have uh, enough fodder so the next time you're in a debate in the, in the boardroom, you can say, hey, look, I at least talked to 20 customers and this is what the customer's saying. Um, the sec if, if you then, you know, get a lot of traction there, then go out and do a survey of your customers and get, get a, a larger sample size to validate some of the things that you heard in the interviews. But I would definitely start with go going to the customer and taking, taking the voice, voice of the customer. Amazing. There's always something that you can do, even if you feel you don't have the resources, right? And this is, I think, yeah. going above and beyond, like nobody's, mm -hmm. nobody's going to say no, or, or a customer is always willing to give you information or give you, um, you know, insights. And all it takes is a bit of creativity and a bit of time. Yeah. Yeah.
Exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, Rob, it's a pleasure to have you in the podcast. I learned a ton about all the, the different marketing strategies as well. Quickly for all the listeners, where can they find and learn more about the firm and, and you personally as well? Come to sterlingwoods.com or you can add me on LinkedIn, Rob Stagno. Awesome. Rob, CEO of Sterling Woods, uh, author, speaker, and just an amazing person. Thank you so much for jumping on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Please remember to leave a review, subscribe on YouTube, and sign up for a ton of free content, exercises, coaching, and frameworks.